So this is the first of our series that we're going to um, be devoting to the Epistle to the Galatians, which I know, as I said in Slack, message doesn't sound very exciting, um, but I think, well, I hope that you'll find it as enthralling and um, rewarding as I'm finding uh, in the preparation. So Galatians is not a very long epistle or a very involved one. It's only six chapters. Uh, compared to, say, the Epistle to the Romans, which covers kind of similar theological territory, uh, which runs to 16 chapters. So it's a much more compressed account than we find in Romans. But notwithstanding its brevity, it's had a remarkable impact on Christian life and thought down through the centuries. So the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, who was named after Martin Luther, told this to Margaret, she thought I was talking about Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther himself, uh, regarded Galatians, which had, had a special role in his own spiritual awakening, with uh, particular affection. He writes, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. Uh, he actually called it his Katie von Bora, which is the name of his, his um, betrothed. Uh, so he was very uh, wedded, literally, almost to this epistle. And other commentators have come to share that kind of impact when they uh, live in this document. So one writes, uh, The epistle to the Galatians is spiritual dynamite. It is therefore almost impossible to handle it without explosions. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens uh, over the coming months. So I wonder why it is that this epistle has had such an extraordinary impact and continues to have this powerful impact on people. I think there's probably at least three contributive um, explanations for that. Uh, one is the kind of human interest dimension of the letter. The letter gives us almost unparalleled insight into the life, the thoughts, the passions, uh, and the drives of its author, uh, the Apostle Paul. So the first two chapters in particular... Um, contain a great deal of autobiographical information on Paul. He tells his own story uh, in those chapters. It's almost like his personal testimony. So he speaks of his former life as a Pharisee. He says, just after the text we've had uh, today, just later on in chapter 1, he says, You have heard, no doubt, of my early life in Judaism, how I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my own people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of the elders than, than were my colleagues. And this zealousness, he says, led to this almost obsessive hatred for the early Christian movement. I violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So this word zeal um, is not like the zeal organization here. It's not a, a term just for being enthusiastic or being fervent. In the first century, zeal was almost a technical term. We were like jihad, I guess, uh, in some circles of Islamists today. It was a term for a preparedness to use lethal violence in order to uphold the covenant and to maintain the Jewish way of life. And Paul you know, was driven by that kind of uh, fanaticism, really. In fact, I think if today we're talking about the pre-Christian Paul, we describe him as a right-wing religious extremist or a fanatic or a religious nationalist because that really what he, what, he, what he was. He goes on to describe his conversion to Christ when 
Quote, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he goes on to talk about his early missionary activity in Arabia, his first visit to Jerusalem three years after his Damascus Road experience, uh, where he spent those 15 days with James and Peter. Then his subsequent missionary work in Syria and Cilicia, his second visit to Jerusalem 14 years after that, uh, his personal contact with the big three apostles in Jerusalem uh, and uh, their agreement to, in a sense, divide the mission field between them with Peter taking responsibility for Jewish evangelism and Paul taking responsibility for the Gentile world. He recounts, we'll talk about this next time, he recounts this blazing row he had with Peter and Barnabas at Antioch where he accused Peter to his face and there's an eyeball to eyeball kind of confrontation. He accused Peter of hypocrisy. And then later on in the epistle, he talks about the circumstances that led to his first uh, missionary work among the Galatians. So there's lots of biographical detail in Galatians, which I think helps to explain its, its appeal, uh, certainly to, to scholars and commentators. But what makes this biographical information so gripping is the sheer emotional intensity behind the way Paul tells the story. That's really a second reason for the letter's impact. Because Paul recounts all this detail about his own life in order to speak into a raging conflict that's taking place in the churches in Galatia. So his language has this white-hot emotional uh, temperature to it. The overall tone of the epistle is really quite severe. There's not a single word of praise given for his readers nor any expression of thanksgiving for them. Uh, it's the only epistle where Paul does not give thanks to God for his readers, even in the current, in current than they were a church and all kinds of strife. Paul praises God for uh, what's been going on in their lives. He doesn't do that in Galatia. After briefly greeting the Galatians to the Galatians or to those who are in Galatia, he launches into this blistering attack upon them for their weakness and their vacillation on the truth of the gospel. So his first words is, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to another gospel. And then in Galatians 3, he says, You stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? So, the, the letter is full of this biting criticism, almost this invective towards his readers. And yet it's also tempered with a kind of recollection of the tenderness and the affection that once existed between him and his newborn children in faith. And the sense of utter bewilderment he feels that they have succumbed so easily to false teaching. So chapter 4, he says, My little children... For whom I am again in the pain of childbirth, till Christ is formed in you. I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So there's an emotional rawness to Paul's language and to the interchange uh, between him and the readers, which I think also explains the impact of this letter on Christian, Christian consciousness. But the third and probably most important reason why Galatians has had this kind of grip on the Christian mind 
is its uncompromising defense of the central truth claims of the Christian gospel. So throughout Galatians, Paul is fiercely defending what twice he calls the truth of the gospel. So that's, that's what he think, thinks is at stake. And the truth, I think, that he um, is referring to is this, that because we are accepted by God solely on the basis of our connection with Christ, our faith in Christ, because of that, nothing else, nothing else must be allowed to serve as the basis for Christian identity, for Christian hope, or for Christian belonging. So because we are accepted solely on the basis of our faith in Christ, nothing else must be allowed to serve as a basis for Christian identity, for Christian hope, or for Christian belonging. And on that basic truth, Paul absolutely refuses to compromise against those who he says are wishing to pervert or twist the gospel by adding some additional requirements to this relationship based on faith. So that's why Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Liberty from all forms of religious performance as somehow being essential to belonging to God and belonging to God's people. So Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And the, the, the epistle has functioned down through history as a kind of clarion call to radical reliance on Christ alone, rather than any other religious or any other cultural practices, however comforting or however biblical, because one thing I have to say about circumcision is biblical, however comforting or biblical those demands might be, that, that must not, in Paul's view, ever um, detract from this radical reliance on Christ alone. So I think it's these three features. It's, it's access to Paul's heart, it's emotional intensity, and it's theological acuity, a single-minded theological focus that accounts for the, the impact of this, uh, this amazing short epistle. Uh, whether it had that kind of impact on the first recipients, who knows? We have no way of knowing. Uh, I guess hopefully people were persuaded by Paul's argument, but maybe some were not. So who were the recipients of this letter? Who was in the, the, the original audience that Paul was addressing? He wasn't writing to us, of course. He's writing uh, to people thousands of years ago. So, um, you know, as New Testament scholars often say, when you read the letters, you're reading somebody else's mail. So you have to try and work out, you know, who, who, who was this mail addressed to in the first place? And why did Paul write to them? I think this is always important. Uh, it's always vital. But I think in the case of Galatians, it's not just interesting background information. I hope you find it interesting. I find it totally fascinating. But it's not just that. I think it's absolutely essential to understand this if we're going to make sense of this document or if we're going to try and apply 
its principles to um, any other situation. So a little bit of a little bit of context. The letter is addressed in verse two to the churches in Galatia. The Roman province of Galatia occupied central and southern Asia Minor, roughly around where modern Turkey is. So that part of the um, the Mediterranean basin. Scholars are kind of evenly divided on whether Paul was writing to the cities in southern Galatia, cities like Derby, Lystra and Iconium, which are mentioned in the book of Acts, where Paul's first mission journey uh, uh, was, was included in, in that, that first mission journey of Paul in Acts 13 and 14, whether it's those uh, cities that Paul has in mind or the cities in northern Galatia, uh, which aren't mentioned in, in Acts, like uh, Ankara, I guess, the, the original Ankara, uh, Tavia and Pessinus, the, these are cities we don't know from Acts, they were populated by ethnic Gauls, because the word Galatians is actually the Greek word for Gauls, so the sort of Celtic tribe uh, was concentrated in that northern area. So, you know, the, 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 this, the experts uh, mount arguments both ways. Um, and the reason why I argue this is that this is quite important to actually deciding what date this epistle was written, and that's interesting for all kinds of other reasons. Uh, but it, whatever one it was, the letter was probably written either in the late 40s uh, or in the early, early to mid-50s. So we're talking about sort of between 15 to 20 years after Paul's Damascus Road experience. So, you know, the letters of Paul were written in the sort of latter part of his ministry, he had a long period of activity uh, before the actual um, the, you know, collection of epistles that we have were penned. But, you know, whether it's northern or southern, whether it was 49 or 50 or 51 or 52, whatever it is, the one thing that is really clear is that Paul himself planted these Galatian churches and that a warm and affectionate relationship existed between Paul and his converts in these, uh, in, in these communities. Because Paul himself refers to this in chapter 4. He writes, You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. Though my condition put you to the test, you did not scorn me or despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Welcome me as I was actually Christ Jesus in your midst. For I testify that had it been possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And so people think, well, did Paul have a kind of eyesight affliction or whatever? We don't know, but he's unwell. But the Galatians weren't put off by the fact that he was a, a sort of bedridden preacher of divine power, which you think would put them off. Uh, but they actually embraced him. And Paul's looking back to that sort of sense of intimacy and love that had existed. So after establishing these churches, and we're probably again uh, going back to the retreat, we're probably talking about two or three congregations. Now we're not talking about an arise. Uh, we're talking about you know, two or three house churches uh, spread across two or three cities. Uh, Paul had departed, uh, clearly leaving them in good heart, uh, and probably under the tutelage of local teachers whose job it was to expound further the gospel that Paul had uh, had entrusted to them. So 
I thought I'd gone off thinking, well, job well done. Um, they're going well. Uh, but a short while later, he received news, uh, probably from one of those local teachers who, you know, wouldn't have sort of written to him or, or um, sent him an email. He would have probably travelled to him. And he came to Paul, just let's imagine that was the case. I mean, this is a wee bit of sort of historical reconstruction here that we're sort of guessing. But came to Paul and he told Paul that the mood in the churches had shifted dramatically. That the Galatians who had once felt so tender-hearted towards Paul were now having second thoughts about him. And much worse, they were having second thoughts about his message. They had grown suspicious of Paul and they were growing increasingly dubious about the version of the gospel that he had presented to them. And we wonder why. What had caused this sudden change of attitude? Well, it was due to visitors from outside Galatia who had arrived in these churches and were unsettling the converts by proclaiming a different version of the gospel than the one that they had received from Paul. And Paul was so distressed to hear this that he decided to respond in writing to them. And he would have, because this was the way things worked, he would have entrusted the letter to this person who had come to visit him. And he would have told him to go back, to gather the church together in each of the cities, to gather the church together and to read the letter to the church. And no doubt to read it expressing the profound anguish and disappointment and in fact outright rage that Paul felt about what was going on. So he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what I proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? So who were these accursed troublemakers? And why were they causing such havoc in Paul's congregations? The only way we can sort of work that out is from a process which the, in the trade they call mirror reading. So, you know, Paul is obviously re reacting to something. He's reacting to something that's going on. And so if we see his words as a kind of uh, refutation or response to, a, a reflection back about what's being uh, said to the, to the first audience, we can, we can reconstruct in broad terms anyway what was being said and who these people were. Now, it's not a bulletproof way of doing it because you can never be quite sure whether Paul is sort of quoting back or he's saying something that you know, they haven't heard before. But I think in this case, it's possible to be uh, clear about several 
points about these opponents who had come into the church uh, and that Paul is pushing back on because uh, he thought they were perverting the gospel. So here's, I think, what we, we can say about them. The first thing to say is they were Christians. These opponents were Christians. They were proclaiming what Paul said was another gospel, but it was still a gospel. They still saw it as the gospel. It's not unbelievers, but believers. Followers of Christ, like Paul, who saw things very differently to Paul. So the letter centers on a major disagreement within the Christian community between first-generation Christians who had radically different perspectives on what Christ and what had been achieved through his death and resurrection, what that meant. So that's kind of interesting in itself. This is a kind of internal dispute within the Christian community. So that's one thing. Second thing is they were Jewish Christians. They are from Jerusalem or Judea. Um, they travelled to the province of Galatia. The Galatian assemblies, the Galatian congregations, were predominantly Gentile in makeup. Now that's obvious because the whole issue of circumcision was about how Gentiles uh, needed to respond. And there are references or reflections during the epistle to their background in idolatry. So they were Gentile uh, believers. Probably, or at least possibly, they were converted God-fearers. So, you know, come across God-fearers in uh, the book of Acts a lot. So there were, there were Gentiles who had been drawn to the synagogue, uh, and the Jews regarded them as God-fearers. They weren't proselytes. They hadn't gone the whole hog of being circumcised and fully observant of the law. But they, you know, they were sort of drawn to the God of Israel. So they're probably God-fearers. Uh, who had been, who had been, because this is fertile ground for Paul, God fears who had been, been one to the gospel. So the, Gen, the Galatians are Gentiles, but the outside agitators, I to use Paul's word for them, they're agitators, the outside opponents were Jewish believers who were travelling through the Galatian congregations with a special message for Gentile Christians. And the message they had for the Gentile Christians was, you will only be acceptable, acceptable to God and you will only fully belong to God's people if you are circumcised. And by being circumcised, you are signalling, because this is what circumcision was, you are signalling that you will submit fully to the demands of the Mosaic law, including observance of Jewish holy days and festivals and food laws and all the other uh, what we would call ceremonial or ritual requirements of the law. Yes, Gentile believers, faith in Christ is important. But it's not enough. It's only the beginning. Now you must add wholehearted commitment to all the commandments of the Torah if you are to truly be part of what Christ has achieved. If you as Gentiles want to be followers of Israel's Messiah, you must surely follow Israel's law, because that's what the Messiah did. If you want to belong to God's people as the children of Abraham, 
you must surely abide by the terms of the covenant with Abraham, whose everlasting sign was, of course, circumcision. So that was what they were saying to these Gentile believers. So here's one way of kind of capturing, I think, the difference between these people's message and that of Paul. In short, I think the visitors to the Galatian churches from Judea, from uh, Jerusalem, saw the Jesus movement as a reform movement within Judaism. A Judaism, a Messianic Judaism, if you like, whose central definition was still commitment to the divine gift of the Torah, which is everything to Jews. So they were, as, as Christians, as those who had, had, had accepted the Messiahship of Jesus, they saw this as a reform movement that was bringing Israel back into, into line with God's intentions. Paul, however, saw the Jesus movement in more revolutionary terms. So I used to teach um, my classes about social movements, and you can, in, in a social movement theory, you can distinguish between uh, reformists and revolutionary reformers. And the reformer wants to just reform the system from within. The revolutionary person wants to actually redefine the whole reality. They were, were reformers. Paul, which is incredible when you think of Paul's background, Paul was much more revolutionary in his understanding of the faith. Based, he believed it was based on a unique intervention by God. Yes, that fulfilled Israel's hope for the coming of the Messiah and for uh, you know, the fulfillment of Israel's destiny in the world, but a unique event that had changed the very structure of the cosmos and that had birthed a new trans-ethnic community that transcended all previous norms of belonging. That was Paul's position. And this, I mean, this will come through as we, as we carry on through the epistle. And I still, you know, I spent decades studying Paul. I still am just awestruck at, at the, the degree of insight he had and the courage he had, uh, given his background as this religious fanatic defending Israel's covenant. Um, to, to, to see that what was happening in Christ uh, you know, wasn't just one stage along a journey, it was actually like a rupture that had split history in two and that everything that followed had to be seen in different, uh, different ways than before. And it's that radicalism of Paul that explains a third feature of these opponents who had come into the church. The third thing that characterised them is they hated Paul. They hated Paul and they hated everything Paul stood for. They considered him to be an apostate, to be a heretic, somebody whose malign influence had to be stopped. They believed that Paul's Gentile mission, the way he was conducting it anyway, was threatening the integrity and the purity of God's people. He was a menace to the identity, to the Jewish identity of the Jesus movement, of the Messianic movement. He was much too liberal. He was far too tolerant. He was far too relaxed about the Torah. 
And so they had to set about stemming the tide. They had to set about undoing the damage that he was doing. Uh, and so when Paul left town, the next crowd turn up <laughs> and to come into the churches um, would try to persuade his converts that they'd been badly misled by Paul, that they had been actually you know, sold a, sold a lemon, really. They argued that Paul was not a true apostle. Only those who were appointed by the risen Jesus prior to the ascension were genuine apostles. Paul did not count. Why Paul has to so firmly defend his apostleship. They argued that Paul wasn't a true apostle. They argued that the big three in Jerusalem, Peter, James and John, did not support Paul's ministry, whatever he said. They considered Paul a maverick. It was doing his own thing. And they said that Paul's gospel was a lie. It was a distortion. It would not bring salvation because it omitted to mention some crucial requirements. He left out the hard bits. Circumcision, Sabbath observance, food laws, festival participation, the whole 600 and I can't remember the acting of 613 requirements of the Torah. So put, your, put yourself in the shoes of these young Galatian converts. This must have been really heavy-duty stuff to try and absorb. You know, Paul had gone. They had felt that they had been you know, um, brought into this amazing thing that God was doing. And then these um, representatives of the Mother Church showed up and say, don't believe a word of it. No wonder they're confused. No wonder they're suspicious about Paul and about his message. So they're Christians, they're Jewish Christians, they loathed Paul. And the fourth thing to say about them, Paul felt the same way about them. (laughs) (laughs) He had the same feelings about them that they had about him. He considered them to be extremely dangerous. They had to be refuted. Uh, you know, we know from Paul's other letter, let I me mean, think of 1 Corinthians 12, for example, we know that Paul actually encouraged diversity in his congregations. Um, or Romans 14, he, he, he encouraged thing, people who saw things differently. He, he um, was very tolerant of different expressions of faith. He talked about being all things to all people. But on this occasion, he wasn't very tolerant. There are limits to diversity. At a certain point, diversity can tip over into to, to deception and it can lead to oppression and injustice. And Paul drew the line where diversity either threatened to subvert the central claims of the Christian gospel or where it led to unloving and destructive behaviour. And usually one leads to the other. And this is what Paul thought was happening in Galatia. These outside visitors, in Paul's mind, are we, you know, we don't have their, their view on things, but in Paul's mind, they were co-opting Christ for their own agenda. An agenda he had once devoted his own life to upholding. They were co-opting Christ for their own agenda and they were doing enormous damage in the process. 
which is why Paul speaks in this letter with such anger and such bitterness towards them. I mean, twice he pronounces a curse on his opponent's activity. And, you know, in any traditional society, that's really heavy duty kind of rebuke. Even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As I've said before, so I now will repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let that one be accursed. And elsewhere in the letter, when he's pushing back against them, he accuses them of acting insincerely, of doing things just for show, of failing to practice what they preach, of demanding circumcision because they simply want to lower the temperature on the, on the Jewish community and avoid persecution. And he even, if you've ever noticed this verse in chapter 5, even acerbically wishes that those who teach, persecu- uh, teach circumcision would slip with the knife and do themselves a terrible injury. I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. <clears throat> Not very restorative, is it? <laughs> <laughs> He's so angry because they were destabilizing the faith of these young believers and because they were denying what he felt was a central truth claim of the work of God in Christ. So in chapter uh, 2 he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So for Paul this is no trifling matter of legitimate diversity. If the visitors are right, then for Paul... The death of Christ was a pointless and tragic waste. But Paul is convinced that they are not right, that they are twisting or perverting the gospel. And so he reaffirms the truth of the gospel. Again, this is his phrase, the truth of the gospel, as vigorously as he can. So the whole epistle uh, can be read, I think it needs to be read, as Paul's kind of step-by-step refutation of the arguments of these false teachers, these, these, these Jewish Christian teachers who he felt um, were, were, were sowing havoc in his, um, his churches. And his response really moves through three, you know, three stages. His enemies denied Paul's apostolic status and credentials. In other words, they tried to deny the authority with which he was proclaiming the gospel to them. And so in chapters 1 to 2, Paul defends his apostleship. And he defends the recognition of his apostleship. We'll talk about this uh, this next time. Uh, the recognition of that by the Jerusalem church. That you know, as anomalous as it was, uh, as unexpected as it was, um, Paul argues that the Jerusalem church, which is the fountainhead of the Christian tradition, recognised it. So that's that's first stage of Paul's pushback. His opponents attacked Paul's law-free version of the gospel. And so in chapters 3 to 4, 
Paul defends this theology of Christian freedom from the rule of the Mosaic law. And his enemies claimed that, and this is no doubt part of their concern, that if the Galatian Gentiles did not have to accept the Mosaic law, then they would probably fall back into idolatry and fall back into immorality. And Paul therefore has to respond, as he does in chapters 5 to 6, by calling on the Galatians not to use, this is his words, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And it's where we get the, you know, this incredible sort of discussion about the role of the spirit as being the source of sort of moral authority in the community. So that this concern that if you don't, if you, if you oh, this is a bit cheeky to put it, you don't have the scriptures, you, you're stuffed. It's not, it's not uh, you know, Paul's sort of pointing to the role of the spirit and actually encouraging uh, godliness in, in the audience. So, you know, through the coming weeks or months, however long it takes us to, to do this journey, um, I think we'll put some more detail on, on those big steps of his argument. Um, but let me just finish by just, again, clarifying what I think is the central issue at stake in this epistle, because we just need to keep this in the forefront of our mind when we try to make sense of some of the things that Paul says. So, you know, I said, Paul usually seems to have handled disagreement with his fellow Christians in a gracious and tolerant way. He was very accommodating to different viewpoints, especially around sort of, um, you know, sort of lifestyle issues. But on this occasion, uh, and often in his epistles, actually, it's true in the Corinthians epistles as well. On this occasion, he's very intolerant and he's very uncompromising. And he's so uncompromising because he believes that there are fundamental issues of truth at stake. In fact, the very truth of the gospel, he thinks, is under threat. And I guess in that sort of situation, there's no compromise response is justified. I guess we, you know, uh, just need to be careful that it is that kind of situation. We refuse to accept another person's uh, version of things. But in this this occasion, Paul felt there was something really, really important that had to be defended. And the falseness of the opponent's view lay in two main arenas, two main areas where this this falseness Paul felt um, needed to be exposed and, and, and refuted. On the one hand, he said, he believed, that they were failing to recognise the sole sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Christ for restoring humanity to its relationship to God and indeed for transforming creation. Because Paul in this epistle is not just talking about how sinners get to heaven, he's talking about this new creation that's been breaking in. So he's, he's, you know, he's got this apocalyptic uh, worldview. They fail to recognise that it's Christ's death and resurrection alone that has achieved that. They felt that faith or trust in what Christ had achieved needed to be supplemented by certain God-given cultural and religious practices. And only then could 
salvation be secured by those who, uh, who related to Christ, uh, for those outside the covenant community, for Gentiles. For Paul, this represented a kind of self-salvation that rendered Christ's role secondary and rendered Christ's death meaningless for Paul. So for Paul, it's Christ alone. There can never be Christ and. There can never be Christ and theological orthodoxy, Christ and cultural uh, distinctiveness. For Paul, it's either Christ or it's not Christ. And so that he had this sort of, you know, this, 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 um, this penetrating insight into the problem with this, um, what I guess for many other Jewish Christians sounded a kind of straightforward way to think about uh, about Gentile inclusion. This is the way the synagogues had always done. You always brought people in and then you encouraged them to go the whole hog and, and be circumcised and become observant. But Paul saw through this kind of almost common sense way of doing his sort of the heart of the issue, which was, he felt, a failure to recognise the sole sufficiency of what Christ himself had done through his death and resurrection. So that was one side of their of their um their error. The other side, and it, it kind of flows from this, the other side was they failed to recognise the radical social implications of belonging to Christ solely on the basis of faith. How this actually worked out in practice, it's not just a theological idea, it's what it meant for the way the community operated and lived. Um, <clears throat> the, the opponents, Paul's opponents, were wedded to the idea of Jewish distinction. I mean, that's from the very beginning, that's the whole idea of being set apart, being special. And uh, the hope was eventually the Gentiles would be, would be, would be redeemed, but they'd be redeemed by being brought in to Israel's distinctiveness. Paul saw, I think, with the almost unique clarity that no human distinction must ever be allowed to become a major source of identity or status within the church. No human distinction must ever be allowed to become a source of identity or status in the church. And because that cannot be allowed, the result is a radically new human equality in the community. So this verse in Galatians 3.28, which has you know, been a great um, clarion call for those who argue for gender uh, inclusiveness in the church, makes sense in this, in this context. For in Christ, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not, I mean, he's not, he's not just talking about you know, how you get saved. He's talking about the whole social outworking of this radical insight into the fact that if it's Christ alone, then every other distinction has to be rendered secondary. Or he says in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. So Paul saw, I think, with this, you know, with this in incredible 
courage and an incredible um, clarity that what God has achieved in Christ sort of recalibrates every existing system of human worth and honour. Every way that the human community has managed to confer honour, prestige, um, superiority on, on members of the human community on basis of race or class or gender or education or politics or whatever it is, Paul saw with the unique clarity that what God had achieved in Christ transcended all that. And it resulted in this radically new, inclusive community of witness. So Galatians is not Paul's final word on the role of the Torah in Christian observance. This was hugely controversial right through the first century. Uh, and it remained controversial, you know, arguably until Jewish Christianity virtually ceased to exist. Uh, Romans also deals with this issue in a more measured, a more nuanced, a more sort of uh, reasoned way because it doesn't have that same polemical edge to it that Galatians does. So Galatians doesn't tell us all we need to know about the issue of the law and Christian faith. But I think Galatians is unsurpassed in its emphasis on the absolute supremacy of Christ over all other sources of Christian identity and loyalty. And I think in our age of, of identity politics, of religious nationalism, of cultural pluralism, uh, this kind of environment that we live and move and have a being in, I think this radical and challenging messages as relevant as ever it was before.